it's um, it's a real pri privilege to be here, uh, and I'm very grateful to the Balfour uh, Project for the invitation. Before we start and uh, getting into substance, um, I'm going to crave your indulgence. I'd like you to do something for me and with me, which is maybe slightly unusual. Um, I'd like you to close your eyes and I'm going to close mine. I can't see you, so I don't know whether you will or not. But what I'd like you to do is just close your eyes and to think back to a time when you in your life have been at your most frightened. It might have been when you were in a car crash or near car crash or in an airplane or at sea or when you were hearing some news about your own health or somebody else. But just think back to that moment or period of absolute abject fear. And you can open your eyes. And the reason I've asked you to do that is because at this precise moment, uh, there are over 120 people, um, perhaps in tunnels, perhaps in basements, perhaps we don't know where, uh, who have been living in abject fear for the past 120 days or so, uh, 300 days, no, three months, sorry. Um, abject, abject fear, not knowing whether they're going to survive, what's going to happen to them from one moment to the next. And at the same time, uh, there are all those in Gaza uh, who have been bombed, who've lost families, who've lost homes, who've lost everything, who've been herded around, moved around, who don't know where their next meal is coming from, uh, don't know whether their families are going to survive or whether members of their families have survived. And they too are living in absolute abject fear. So what we're talking about today impacts those people. This is real lives. But some of those who we're thinking about may not survive to see the future that we're talking about. And that makes it even more important that we and the international community and working with the people involved uh, get this right. Now, you might be wondering, you know, what qualifies me to talk about any of this? So I'll just give you a very brief uh, background. Uh, in 1946, 1947, my father uh, happened to be a, a newly qualified doctor, qualified in London, uh, but he was working in the area uh, at the time of partition. And according to the stories that he told, um, he treated um, Arabs, Jews, without fear or favor, uh, including members of militias of both sides. Uh, for him, uh, people were people. When I, uh, my sister was born in Jordan, um, I was conceived in Jordan, uh, but actually born back in the UK uh, because my father contracted TB uh, while he was the only doctor for 60,000 Palestinian refugees down in the Jordan Valley. Uh, after graduating, I went out to Jordan um, and spent three and a half years uh, teaching English uh, there, uh, during which time I uh, tutored the son of Khalil 
uh, al-Wazir. Now, Khalil al-Wazir was the original Abu Jihad. He was the military commander of the PLO. And I uh, used to go into his house to uh, uh, tutor his son. And every now and then, uh, a short, tubby, little, unshaven man uh, would walk through the room and nod at me. Um, and I would nod back at uh, Yasser Arafat. At the same time, I was also uh, tutoring a member of the royal family. So I was in this bizarre position of seeing the two extremes. Um, and it set me wondering, what is it that drives one man to want to blow up other people? And on the other hand, a man strive for peace in the region. Uh, I joined the uh, Foreign Office and was sent away uh, to Cairo uh, to learn Arabic. Um, and amongst uh, the jobs that I, I did, um, oh, I should say I did a short stint in the army before that. Um, I was in the Gulf for Desert Storm. I was cross-posted to Belgrade uh, for uh, the Bosnian War, where I had the privilege, uh, the dubious privilege of being shouted out by President Milosevic. Uh, I was in Greece, then Macedonia for the Kosovo crisis. I went to Nigeria as uh, uh, running the political side of things in Nigeria. And then I was seconded back into the military, uh, onto the command staff um, of the uh, British Army um, for the invasion of uh, Iraq in 2003. And I was there for the fighting and for uh, some time afterwards helping set up the interim councils in Basra and in the area under British occupation. Um, I think I was the only foreigner who was at both national conferences in Iraq that were due to decide on what political um, system they wanted to have at the end of the war. Uh, I then, uh, when I came back, I ran the uh, intergovernmental, interdepartmental uh, project on, it was supposed to be called Lessons Learned, but I refused to call it that, Lessons Identified on Post-Conflict Reconstruction. Um, and. Uh, around the project which led to the foundation of what we call the stabilization unit or what became the stabilization unit. Uh, I then spent um, a number of years uh, actively um, on, on operational counterterrorism issues, um, chasing bad people. Uh, and then when I left uh, the Foreign Office, I spent a number of years at St. Andrews University, the Center of the Study of Political uh, sorry, the Center for the Study of Political Violence and Terrorism um, as course tutor for the Certificate and Advanced Certificate on Terrorism Studies, um, and that's me. So, in this discussion, I'm starting on the premise that after the fighting is over, and the key issue here is when there is a permissive environment, we'll need to construct something new in Gaza for the benefit of the Palestinians and it must be said also for the Israelis. We don't want to leave it desolate, nor do we just want to reconstruct what has been destroyed and return to the status quo ante. But we have to realize that the way that Israel is waging war will influence what happens when the fighting stops. 
the Israelis have said that their aim is to destroy Hamas, its military capability and its ability to govern Gaza. And commentators have uh, said that this is impossible for a variety of reasons. You can't destroy an ideology. Someone is always going to supply arms. But there has actually been a precedent. In 2009, uh, Sri Lanka decided it was going to rid itself of the Tamil Tigers. And the Tamil Tigers were the most successful, in inverted commas, terrorist group in the world up until 9-11. They had killed uh, two heads of state. They had uh, an army, navy and air force section. They had child soldiers. They had female suicide bombers and they had pioneered the use of the suicide vest. At one stage, they controlled a third of the landmass of Sri Lanka. Uh, They had their own post office, uh, police and tax system. And they also ruthlessly uh, killed all opposition, including uh, other Tamil groups. 2009, the government of Sri Lanka decided enough was enough. And they went for all out war. Uh, There were heavy civilian casualties. The Tamil population was uh, driven from one place to another. Infrastructure was destroyed, Uh, schools, hospitals, the usual. Uh, And they ended up with uh, around 80,000 civilians and the remnant of the Tamil Tigers corralled in an area the size of Central Park. The government used heavy weaponry and air power, hitting medical medical facilities, uh, camps, etc. And in the end, the leadership were all killed. Uh, The government claimed they were trying to escape, but I have seen reports uh, suggesting that they were trying to surrender and uh, turned up to a rendezvous point to surrender uh, where they were then uh, shot. The government set up uh, internment camps, refused entry to international aid, uh, and when the aid was allowed in, they tightly controlled its distribution. And they sent settlers in to live in Tamil areas. Does it sound familiar? Well, the Sri Lankan army was trained, advised, and armed by Israel. So the the way that they are waging the war against the Palestinians in Gaza is part of the Israeli strategic and tactical playbook. It's important to recognize that the underlying objectives of the Israeli government are as important as those overtly stated ones and will, will have an immense influence on what happens if and when the fighting stops. Construction can only occur in a benign environment if and when all parties want it to happen. And do both parties want it to happen in Gaza? Do either party really want a benign environment? Or are we in a situation where, paradoxically, Israel and Hamas are content with a state of chaos, low-grade warfare, and the impossibility of creating something new.
Netanyahu is bent on the destruction of Hamas. And he has a career dedicated to opposing a two-state solution. Hamas is dedicated to the destruction of Israel with no compromise. If Netanyahu thinks he's a busted flush, would he put destruction of Gaza's infrastructure and making future life for Palestinians in Gaza untenable over the rescue of hostages? Hamas might prefer the chaos as it fuels anger and resentment of the Palestinians, which is also growing in the West Bank, and uh, criticism of Israel by the international community. And it also fuels future um, recruitment for them. The key issue will be to improve the quality of life of the Palestinians in Gaza. But destroying infrastructure makes that impossible and also disincentivizes people to stay. Basic things that people need, and that this is all of us. We need food, water, shelter, health care, and a sense of security. And it's going to be key at the end of all this that we demonstrate and that Gazans, Palestinians in Gaza can see and feel that their sense of that their quality of life is being improved. And if there's a pause between war and the start of rebuilding or building something new, it allows even more anger and resentment uh, to, to build up. And of course, one of the things that we're going to see is post-traumatic stress. And that's on both sides of the border. The people in Gaza are traumatized and they're going to be, they're se severely traumatized now. And when the war finishes, the fighting stops, they will continue to be traumatized. But also think, we're not seeing very much at the moment of what's going on in Gaza. We're not allowed to see what's going on. The Israelis are controlling the, uh, the media. But when the fighting stops and the journalists go in and the international media go in, we are going to see the scale of destruction. And that will have an impact back in Israel. You also need to think of the uh, Israeli soldiers, many of whom are conscripts. They will be going back to a situation where they will see and hear and feel the international opprobrium of the levels of destruction uh, when they see also the conditions that refugees are living in. And we may well see what the Americans suffered at the end of uh, the Vietnam War, what uh, we've suffered uh, after the two Gulfs War and the Falklands War of veterans suffering from PTSD, severe trauma, suicides, and uh, social problems. So, you know, these are issues that are going to have to be faced as well as providing the bare, you know, the, the, the bare essentials for life. These are the key things. We made massive mistakes in Iraq. And that was one of the, one of the problems that we had in Iraq. 
we knew what the result was going to be. We knew at the end state uh, of Iraq. We knew that there was going to be regime change. Uh, there was absolutely no doubt about the outcome, but we still got it wrong. We still got the reconstruction side of things wrong. We, that is the UK, the US and the coalition, were very careful um, some of you may not know that uh, when the British Army goes to war, it takes uh, a senior lawyer with it uh, to make sure that uh, the international rules of conflict are observed. And one of the things that we were advised by our senior lawyer uh, was that we had to be careful of the infrastructure uh, because we as the occupying power had to respect the infrastructure uh, of the government of Iraq, which we did as much as uh, as much as possible but that led to problems because the iraqis uh, didn't believe that we were going to finish the job and told us that if we were leaving um, regime icons and buildings standing it was a demonstration that we were going to do as we did um, in the first gulf war which was retreat and hand them back to saddam which gave us a bit of a quandary but the key mistakes that we made in Iraq were that we didn't have a plan, that there was a long delay from the end of the conflict to the start of reconstruction, and that it was the military, and in the UK sector, it was the British military uh, who started the reconstruction. And because of the planning, it, they weren't relieved and sent back to the UK and replaced by fresh troops. It was the war fighting soldiers who then had to start the reconstruction, which meant that both they and the Iraqis with whom they're working had to change their mindsets from war fighting to peace building, which is very, very difficult. There was a lack of finance, personnel uh, and resources. The US dominated and set the agenda. The wrong people were involved. Uh, both in terms of running the uh, reconstruction efforts, but also um, with uh, trying to rebuild some of the political and social structures. Part of my job was to find the right people um, to get involved in some of the, uh, the, the councils, the interim councils. And I was basically told, uh, you know, forget tribal leaders, forget religious leaders. Uh, you know, what we're looking for are the technocrats and people from the diaspora who have experience of uh, living in the outside world. But of course, those were exactly the wrong people uh, because people flying in, people from the diaspora, they were immediately accused of, well, you don't know what we've been through. Where were you over the last 30 years when we were living under Saddam? And I would say overall, there was an utter, utter, utter lack of understanding uh, of the culture and mindset of people uh, who had lived through the trauma of the Saddam years. So where do we go from here? Let me see, where do we go from here? It's easy to focus, I think, on the physical infrastructure when we're thinking about building a new Gaza. 
buildings underpin all other aspects of what are going to be needed. We're going to need food, water, shelter, healthcare, yes, but also education, welfare, an economy, employment, agriculture, commerce, political, religious, security, economic, and all other aspects of everyday life to get people back to normal. The problem is that the tectonic plates of life in Gaza are shifting and will continue to shift. There is no social structure. There is no uh, economic structure. There's no educational structure. There's no health structure. Everything is moving. The tectonic plates are shifting and they're going to go on shifting after the fighting is over. And you don't build on an earthquake zone. At least you don't build permanent structures. Nor do you ask people who are suffering from severe PTSD to make life-changing decisions. And that might suggest that along with the physical side of things, there should be a, which needs to progress, uh, progress rapidly. There should be a pause in trying to set up political structures, particularly if you're asking Palestinians to do so because they're going to be severely traumatized and the decisions they make may not be the best in the long term. I can remember talking to um, an Iraqi uh, who was a tomato farmer in an area that we had just um, retaken or we'd just taken and I asked him what he was expecting what did he want and he looked at me and said I want to be able to talk to whoever I want to talk to I want to be able to travel wherever I want to go I want to do the business that I want to do without let or hindrance and then he looked at me and said but don't ask us to make decisions because we don't know how. And I think we need to be mindful of that as part of the PTSD. The destruction of schools, universities, hospitals, utilities, and everything makes the resumption of the basic necessities and rituals of life very difficult or impossible to get on with when the fighting stops. The Israeli government has said that it will retain responsibility for security in Gaza, and it will certainly control crossing points. The problem is that the equipment and resources needed to rebuild the physical structures in Gaza to allow life to continue uh, are exactly the same as those needed to renew a network of tunnels. And the Israelis may well use that as an excuse to prohibit, delay, or restrict their entry into Gaza, thus prolonging the misery of the Palestinians and increasing the pressure on them to leave. And we can discuss, if you like, the influence or pressure the UN, US, the Gulf states, or the EU, or even the UK might be able to bring to bear on the Israeli government. Uh, we can do that in the discussion time. But I'd, I'd like to finish 
this particular bit with uh, an anecdote. Uh, in the mid 80s, I was teaching in Jordan and was driving back to the UK one summer uh, with my wife and three small children, the youngest of whom was a year old. And Syria at the time was uh, a deeply disturbed country. There had just uh, not long before been the massacre in, in Hama and uh, the relationship between Syria and the, and the UK um, was, was pretty miserable. The idea was always to get to this Syrian border early in the morning uh, and drive through during the daylight and uh, get out the other side into Turkey uh, late in the afternoon. But because of what was going on in Syria at the time, there were holdups uh, on the border. Uh, we got into Syria late and uh, we got north of Damascus uh, very late the afternoon, early evening, and I was running out of fuel. And I had to pull into a small village uh, to get fuel. And I had UK plates on the VW camper van that I had. The young Syrian who was 19, uh, who was running the petrol station, leather jacket, jeans, walked around the, uh, the car. He looked at me and he just said one word. British. And I said, yes, British. And he looked at me and said, okay, British. No petrol. My heart sank. It's going to be stuck in Syria. No petrol, no uh, consular help uh, with a wife and three small children. And then he looked at me and said, no petrol till we drink coffee. <laughs> So he made coffee, got some bread, which he gave to me to pass into the van. We drank coffee and then he filled us up with petrol. And before I drove off, he looked me in the eyes and he said, remember, it's people, not governments. I heartily agree with him. Thank you, Charlie. That was a good anecdote to end on. And we've got a lot of point to pick up on in our discussion now, which I hope will go on for about 15 minutes. With our audience's indulgence, I think that we should allow time up till quarter past the hour, because there'll be many questions for sure, so that we won't um, cut off um, arbitrarily on the hour itself. Several of the things you said struck me very forcibly. and. I won't go into a long description of my own background, but I have experienced firsthand at least three previous rounds of fighting in Gaza. And I work there for the United Nations, very familiar with the challenges that have had. One thing I can say for sure is that this conflict is not going to produce a return to the status quo. It will not happen. I would that, agree. Is, that is in part because no donor is going to come in and pay for large amounts of money for reconstruction only for it to be knocked down again in a few more years time with another round of fighting. This is going to be a definitive break with the past. And therefore we're looking into the unknown. It's not a familiar pattern of what we have seen before. We are, and we have to draw on the kind of experience you had in Iraq, I had in East Timor and in Kosovo look at what mistakes we've made as the international community going into these territories. 
um, apply a certain amount of humility, which we often lack in terms of what the lessons are that we had learned from our previous experience and don't think that we have all the answers. One of the people who posted a comment in the chat said, you know, what do the Palestinians want? And I think, you know, I can answer that reasonably well because I've lived there and I have many friends in, in Gaza. I think they want freedom from oppression, from wherever that comes from, whether that's from Israel or from Hamas or arbitrary rule over them. I think that they want the ability to lead um, lives of purpose, dignified lives of, of, of purpose and autonomy. They want personal freedoms and autonomies that they can actually stand on their own feet. Because one thing that's essential for us to remember is that Palestinians in Gaza have been placed in a state of dependency, treated like beggars for the last 16, 17 years, dependent on handouts from the international community. And that robs people of their human dignity and their personal autonomy to take charge of their lives and rebuild communities. And when we're talking about reconstruction, we're talking about rebuilding of community life and economic life not just the physical infrastructure, which I'm sure you're... I completely agree, which is, you know, one of the points I was making. Um, and, you know, what you describe as, you know, what do the Palestinians want? You've actually described what most people in the world want. Um, you know, that freedom of uh, expression, autonomy. Um, it's, it's, it's what we all want their, their, you know, basic needs and wants. And um, don't let's forget, um, it's what the Jewish diaspora wanted uh, when they were struggling for the foundation of Israel. Um, so it, it's a common need and a common want. Let me ask you a basic question. In, in your introduction, you mentioned this rather technical phrase, which I understand and share, but perhaps not everybody appreciates what it means in practice, that the importance of a benign environment in order to allow reconstruction to go ahead. So let me ask the basic question, what in your experience are the essential preconditions for any serious reconstruction or construction to start in Gaza? Well, I'd, I'd start off with that expression, you know, benign environment. Um, what in, in a lot of ways, it's easier to define the negative. Uh, what you can't have is an insecure environment where uh, there is low-level fighting going on, where um, people who are involved in the provision and distribution of aid um, are targets, uh, where the uh, Buildings, if you're trying to rebuild buildings, um, are being destroyed. Uh, one of the things the Taliban did in Afghanistan during the Russian um, uh, invasion uh, and, and occupation was the International Red Cross uh, operating out of their, uh, their uh, hospital in Kabul were building clinics out in some of the villages. And uh, the Taliban waited until the uh, clinics were finished, built um, and uh, equipped, um, and then they blew them up. Uh, and it was a phenomenal waste of resources, but, it, you know, it was it was part of their tactic to 
undermine um, stuff that was going on, uh, even though it was, you know, Russian occupation at the time. Uh, you can't have that happening. What you have to have is agreement uh, on all parties, from all parties, that they're going to allow this to happen. And that means um, unhindered access of expertise and of materiel um, uh, and and equipment. And, you know, again, one of the issues that would be a complete disaster is if we didn't plan in advance, if we were all sitting there waiting uh, somehow you know, for, for the fighting to end and the benign environment to uh, suddenly materialize. And then we started planning, and then we started shipping um, materiel and basic necessities into Gaza from Egypt or wherever. No, we have to have stuff on the border, lined up, ready to go. Um, because, the, as I said, you know, the key thing is you have to demonstrate um, that, the, that the quality of life is going to improve. Because if you don't, then you leave the way open to uh, Hamas and even more extreme elements to um, foster uh, um, a sense, a further sense of uh, grievance and injustice. I'm going to challenge you a little bit on yeah. uh, something that you said, which is your assumption that Israel is going to maintain control. Now, I think it's a reasonable assumption, given its declarations and its past practices, and the fact that there is also a traumatized population in Israel, which was deeply shocked by the events of 7th of October, and um, does not trust the international community, quite frankly. But at the end of the day, you know, there is a clash between the principles, which is that Gaza is occupied territory, and the people are entitled to protection legally, and it's the obligation of the international community, for which the UN is the main arm uh, in terms of operational practice, to be able to provide it, to be able to put it in there. But we also have to deal with political realities. So the issue here becomes who actually is going to become the temporary administrative authority, who actually is going to provide the first elements of security along the borders, but also internally? And can you divorce those from the Palestinian Authority in Ramallah? My question is a slightly rhetorical one because I suggest you can't really, even though that Palestinian Authority in Ramallah has pretty low prestige these days, pretty low uh, standing in, in its public, in its own public, and particularly so in Gaza, where they've been absent for the last almost 17 years now, and are associated with the Fatah people who, who were thrown out, out from, from, from the territory. So there's Absolutely. a challenge, there's a challenge yeah. to be dealt with here. Absolutely. And I think it's a massive challenge. And, you know, what we learned from uh, both Iraq and Afghanistan is if you try and foist um, either individuals, a system or a or a party um, on a deeply traumatized and unwilling population, you're just um, storing up more trouble for yourself. Uh, and that's why you know, I was saying that, that those sort of decisions may have to be delayed um, for a while until the, the initial trauma um, sort of dies down. Um, I think it's 
you know, it's, it's beyond question that the Israelis are going to control access um, uh, for, to all the crossing points into and out of Gaza. I don't think there's any question of that. Um, yes, of course, there's an obligation for the international community. There's an obligation uh, on Israel as the occupying power uh, to do all that it can. Um, but as we know uh, from situations around the world, um, whatever the obligations are, people can say no. And, you know, history uh, is, is stuffed full of examples of people who say no. And it's what I call the, the, the politics of no. And it works extremely well until you overreach yourself and then it all goes horribly wrong. Whether you're a Milosevic or a Mugabe uh, or a Ceausescu or whatever, you can hold out against the international community um, for a very long time. And if the Israelis just say, well, actually, no, um, because we are deeply concerned about our own security and those bulldozers are not coming in, uh, neither is that cement nor those reinforcing rods because they can be used for building tunnels. Um, and that is our primary concern. What are we going to do about it? Um, are we going to send in a UN peacekeeping force that is going to challenge the Israeli army? I don't but think so. Here, Charlie, as, as someone who's lived in Gaza and knows the entry and exit points for goods and for people, I am going to challenge you because I think that you are right in saying that Israel will, of course, maintain control over the two main crossing points that it is responsible for into Israel mm. proper, into Israel itself, excuse me. And those are the Eretz crossing and the Kerem Shalom crossing, which is the main commercial crossing for, for goods. But there is going to be a need to expand the Rafa crossing, which is currently mainly yes. for pedestrians and gets only a small amount of goods coming in uh, through Egypt to be on a much, much larger scale than it is at the moment. Now, yes. there has to be pushback at the end of the day against what Israel wants. Israel's security diktats cannot be allowed to stand. And that, I think, is where we are at the moment in terms of the thinking that is going on and the political exchanges that are taking place that will allow um, much more aid to be able to come in of the scale that is going to be needed because the needs are immediate. You have 1.9 million people displaced. You have an enormous amount of rubble to get rid of in the first place, never mind the unexploded ordnance. And you have yes. experience. Unexploded yes. ordnance is a very serious obstacle before there can be yes. any or reconstruction. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that you're pushing back because it shows a degree of optimism, which perhaps I don't share, because I'm looking at the wider kind of geopolitical um, situation, because a lot of these decisions would be taken by the UN, um, and uh, there will need to be a certain amount of pressure uh, from the US. Now, the US at the moment is deeply involved uh, in its own election. Um, We've just seen uh, Mr. Trump uh, triumph in the New Hampshire primary. Um, and we know that if uh, he becomes president again, uh, he has very little sympathy for uh, the Palestinian cause. And uh, he was the one who um, initiated the move of the American embassy to Jerusalem. So I think he's unlikely to um, be particularly sympathetic or to, to spend a lot of political capital uh, trying to do anything on that. Um, 
you know, President Biden at the moment is is preoccupied in in re-election. Is he going to expend a lot of time, energy, and effort um, when, particularly, when we don't know what the end state is going to be or how long it's going to be, uh, when it when it is? So um, I'm kind of slightly dubious, and also I think. Uh, there is a lot of influence here that could be brought to bear by the Gulf states and Saudi Arabia. And they will use that to their own advantage as well. So um, they'll be they'll be talking to, to Egypt. And I, I'm just sort of hesitant. I think you've got to get all the geopolitical um, pieces um, in the right place on the board before that you know the the expansion of of um, uh, border crossing from from Egypt will happen. Um, no, I'm not I'm not kind of optimistic in the in the short term. And also, uh, there's no point in doing that unless you've got the plan in place, unless you've got the resources in place, unless you've got the the you know the personnel in place. You could expand the border crossing, and there's nothing to come across. Charlie, there are very good grounds for your pessimism and to, for people to push back against my perhaps overly rosy or optimistic look at what could happen, provided there is mm. political will. And you have rightly pointed to the political challenges of Biden in an election year, whether the Americans are seriously going to put their backs behind it. I think that there is a need also for the Arab countries who are most directly affected, that's Jordan and Egypt, plus, of course, Saudi Arabia, the other Gulf countries, which are seeing their own populations react in anger to the scenes that they're watching on television and know that it's in their interest also to be able to help in a direct way. But they don't want to do it in a way that does not connect the future of Gaza to the future of the rest of the Palestinian territories. Yes, yes. Make, making that connection politically and ensuring that the temporary authority in Gaza does not become a permanent authority there and yes. it becomes another independent statelet un under some kind of international administration with, a, with local Palestinians of the kind that you described, perhaps technocrats coming in from, from abroad. That cannot be the case. No. So the politics of this matters a great deal. Yes. But I, I want to take our discussion on to another point before we open up to, to the audience, and that's about security in an area that you know a lot about. Mm. Because my own working assumption for the immediate post-war, or let's say post-major combat operations is a better way to phrase it, um, environment, is that there's going to be a con continuing security problems in the territory, not least from whatever remnants of Hamas fighters might still be there, and because I don't think it's realistic to assume that they're all going to be killed, but they may lie low. But there are also likely to be other more extreme Islamist groups who have existed there in the past and definitely are potentially present again. Yes. Um, there could be um, ISIS, Daesh, as it's known in Arabic, returning, taking advantage of the extreme unhappiness of the, the, the Gazan population. And you could suddenly see a, a, a grassroots uh, revolt that was spread by, by extreme anger from, from young people who've lost everything. Is that a realistic prospect? Uh, I think it's not just a realistic prospect. I think it's a, um, um, a certainty. And the question is um, how that can be contained. And 
I mean, from a personal point of view and my experience in talking to terrorists is that if you can undermine the ideology by making it irrelevant, um, that is the best way of, that's the best way of doing it. And, you know, by that, I mean, if you can find a way for Israel and Palestine to live in peace, uh, for Israelis and Palestinians to live in peace, then you're undercutting um, the ideology of hate on both sides. Now, is that feasible? Yes, of course it's feasible. Um, is it likely to happen in the immediate future? No. Uh, you've got, you, you will have severely traumatized people who have lost everything and who will be subject to um, persuasion by the extremists. And if you look at the narrative of some of the sort of well-known um, terrorists and extremists who have committed, um, you know, lone wolf um, operations, uh, you can see the way in which many of them were isolated or felt alone or felt alienated from the communities they were in, but who were then adopted and, and cherished and loved and made to feel valued and given something to do, which would fulfill the aims of the organization. And, you know, there are going to be plenty of people in, in Gaza. Um, who, who feel like that, and not only young people, um, you know, older ones too. I'm, I'm going to bring you back from the big picture to the mundane but essential day-to-day -day realities of life in post-combat Gaza. And the two most essential things that people are going to need in order to be able to survive, and I'm perhaps I shouldn't limit it to two, it could be food and water also, uh, are the provisions of electricity and fuel for, for running generators, hospitals, etc. Yeah. but also water. Now, water, Gaza has always been very short of water. The nearby Israeli settlements, uh, excuse me, nearby Israeli um, kibbutzim and agricultural communities had taken most of the water from the underground aquifer. It's the same aquifer that goes under, under Gaza also. And uh, Gazans lived on very little on, on an underground aquifer, which was increasingly becoming um, undrinkable. The Israelis have made that worse by pumping seawater into the tunnels and mm. potentially destroying a lot of the water. Now, life cannot exist with, without water. We all know that. So we have to start thinking, is this going to happen in future with Israeli cooperation? Are they going to be providing and ensuring that they don't turn the tap off in future as they did on this occasion or, or threatened to do so as a lever over the population literally kept hostage uh, in, 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 in Gaza itself? Or are we going to look at alternatives, more imaginative ones, so desalination plants that will be set up um, with, with international help as the Gulf countries have, have done. I think there is a need for greater imagination to allow a situation in which Gaza has more control 
over its own destiny and is not dependent on Israel being able to control all the key cards. I, I would completely agree. And um, there has been debate even within um, you know, the, the um, Westminster Parliament over whether the um, turning off of the taps by the Israelis was a breach of international uh, humanitarian law. And there are experts uh, who are much better qualified than me to, to give you chapter and verse on that. Uh, my answer is yes, uh, it was, and that there is an uh, international obligation um, for the Israelis to turn their taps on. I don't think that'll be sufficient. And you you mentioned the Gulf states and uh, desalination plants. Um, I lived in the UAE for uh, a while, and you know the Gulf states are they have a vast experience in desalination plants. And if that was something that they would want to do, I would think that would be an excellent suggestion because it would give Palestinians in Gaza a um, uh, a degree of independence and self-sufficiency, which I think is absolutely key. Um, with electricity, um, obviously we need uh, generators. Um, sometimes when we're in the West, the idea of generators providing electricity um, sounds a bit weird and exotic. But if you've lived in the Middle East or in Africa, um, that's quite a normal um, state of affairs you know a lot of houses and businesses you know run on generators um, whether they come in under UN sponsorship or run in uh, or, or are operated under UN auspices um, I certainly think that they should be uh, free from Israeli interference because again um, you know that interferes with the provision of healthcare, hospitals, educational facilities, commercial activity, reconstruction activity. So yes, um, I'm in I'm in complete agreement with you there, and I certainly think that they should remain independent of Israeli control. Whether they will or not, uh, I don't know, because as yet, you know, the great unknown is what kind of Israeli government there is going to be in a year's time or in less than a year's time. Uh, if Netanyahu goes, and it seems to me that the majority of Israelis would like to see him gone, what government replaces him? What we can be fairly sure of is that in the short term, it's not going to be an Israeli government um, that is going to be wholeheartedly behind the um, building up of new structures in Gaza. Um, so we're going to have to work with an Israeli government that is going to be predisposed to wanting probably uh, to see Palestinians leave Gaza and therefore not necessarily to be as helpful as they could or should be. I think that's something of an understatement, Charlie, a typical British understatement there, but uh, let's leave it at that, yeah. because I, the, the moment has come for us to bring our audience in. They've been terribly patient. So we'll ask uh, Diana as our moderator to be able to address some of the questions. I've seen quite a few comments, uh, Dee, you must have had lots of questions also. So yes. I'd like you to manage this challenge. 
Um, I can already tell you we've had far more questions than we will be able to get through. So apologies in advance um, if we don't get to yours, but I'm trying to cover as many of the different themes that have come up in the different questions. Um, I've actually got sort of um, two comments that I'm going to lump together and then a, a question. So basically, this is going to be on healthcare and um, education and academia in the area because we haven't gone deep into those two topics. No. Um, so there are two comments on, on health um, that I thought you could uh, discuss and comment on. And then one question about the sort of academia side. Um, we've got from Bruce Stanley, let's remember the intergenerational health problems, cancer, he's put pregnancy. I think that's a bit harsh on the children to call them an intergenerational problem, but I think we know what you mean. Um, mental health, I'm gonna add in there. Um, of all the toxic waste be left behind, the building destructions and so forth. This is a hundred year dead zone for the people living there. Um, and also the time obviously it takes to reconstruct all the healthcare services and so forth. And then from Gregory Wilson, unfortunately the media are re reporting that Hamas run the health ministry and health services. This is not the real picture. So a comment on the healthcare provisions there would be great. And then also um, on education, we've got from Frank Dominey, the Israeli army have destroyed many universities and education buildings, killed many academics and teachers and so forth. Um, how do we rebuild the university sector and the education sector on a whole without um, scattering the Palestinian intelligentsia to the four winds? We can teach by Zoom, but how do we run experimental sciences and so forth over mm -hmm. Zoom? Um, so over to you. Okay, you start, Johnny. I was gonna say, um... That's why I made a comment about um, Israel's unstated objectives um, in the way that they're conducting this war being as important as their stated objectives, because uh, in the destruction of hospitals, universities, schools, all these sort of things, what you're going to end up with is uh, an environment where if you're a student um, and you want to continue your studies, you know, you may have to go abroad. And if you go abroad, are you going to be allowed to return? Uh, first thing. The same if you're needing healthcare. And, uh, you know, I mean, this, this is the utter, utter tragedy, you know, and the, 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 you know, the folly of it is that we all know that, you know, wars end, wars don't go on forever. You know, all wars end somehow. Um, but once the war is over, people go on dying as a result of them. And in destroying uh, hospitals, for whatever reason, um, you are condemning a lot of people to die after the war is over. Now, it seems to me that... You know, the healthcare is one of the most important things that we need to have on the stocks ready to go in. And, you know, we should, the international community should start to plan for this and resource it now, now, so that if for some reason there is a two-month uh, two uh, lull, as people are talking about, you know, we can get people in there. We can we can start dealing with it. Uh, you know, prevarication. You know, we as the international community, if we prevaricate on these issues, we are we bear uh, you know quite a lot of the moral responsibility um, for the continuing um, death and destruction once the fighting stops. Um, education. 
you know, uh, Zoom relies on um, electricity and Wi-Fi and signal and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and it can be done if there is the determination to do it. But no, you know, we need, young people need to feel there is a future. And this is what I'm, you know, trying to get across is that you can't delay you have to demonstrate that the quality of the life is going to improve. And, you know, I've seen, I've seen refugee kids um, and what do they want? They want to sit down somewhere, even if they've got no um, blackboard or, or, or walls to a school, they want to sit, they want to learn. Um, we have to be able to provide that and, you know, never, ever, ever underestimate, you know, the importance of teaching and, and teachers and schools. Andrew. Let, let me um, put in a plug for my former organization, UNRWA, because UNRWA is responsible for two thirds of the population, maybe 70% of the population in terms of their basic needs of health, education, social welfare, housing, a lot of the basic infrastructure that's required in, in the refugee camps. Now, before this war broke out, UNRWA was on its knees. It was almost at the point of having to close its doors because of the long-term decline in donor funding as opposed to the growing scale of needs, not just in Gaza, but in the four other territories where and countries where, where UNRWA operates. So it's had a boost, obviously, because everyone recognizes the centrality of it. But it continues to face a really hostile Israeli government, which continues to argue that UNRWA is part of the problem and needs to be abolished. And it's a, that's an ideologically based argument uh, against it, not one that is based on care or concern for, for the well-being of, of the populations. But UNRWA is in place. Yes, it's lost a lot of its people. Its facilities have been severely damaged. It's going to have to rebuild its, its strength. But it's an organization that's been going for 74 years in Gaza mm. and has the trust of the local population, a very important factor, because it's been by their sides for so long, for generations now. So that's a small straw to grasp at, if you like, in a very dark picture of where some hope might be coming from. Now, I've seen in, in some of the, the chat that uh, has been popping up comments about Israel's obligations. Of course, Israel has obligations towards the territory. Unless the basics are, it is occupied territory still under international law, and Israel is the occupying power and has the primary responsibility for the well-being of the population. That doesn't mean that it respects that obligation or has been particularly um, generous with, with, with providing the support that, that is needed for, for it. And these are issues that are going to be looked into legally. There are going to be some legal accountability issues that, that are, are going to be addressed here. Um, but I don't want to stray too far away from, from the main issues. Regarding health, um, it is correct that there is going to be long-term mental health problems. I've seen it from the much pre previous conflicts on a much smaller scale. And the scale of mental health problems in Gaza was always seriously underestimated and there was completely inadequate resources to be able to deal with it. I think we also have to think and not forget the very large number of children who are mutilated and who are going to, yes. who are handicapped and who are going to need artificial limbs and are going to have to adapt 
to a very different life than they had beforehand. The, the numbers are huge. And I really do not wish to put myself in the position of Sigrid Kog, the, the UN uh, uh, humanitarian coordinator who has been appointed over this task, because you say, where do I begin? It is so big. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't think we, we fully yet understand the extent of what's been going on. And that's because the media, um, you know, uh, has been very carefully controlled access to, to Gaza. And I am prepared to be even more horrified um, than I have been in, in previous conflicts um, when we do have access and we do see what's been going on. And um, I think the world is, it really will be um, horrified, absolutely horrified. Diana, let's take the next questions. Yeah, um, I just want to ask everyone who has questions to pop them in the chat box rather than raising your hands. I also want to say that um, I will be sharing the chat box with both speakers so they will see all of your comments and your questions that we don't have time for and everything. So um, because, as I said, we've got so many questions that we just won't get through all of them, but I will make sure that they're shared with the speakers. Um, I want to have a question. I have a question from Tess Ingleby. And Tess, if you're there, if you can maybe let me know while I'm asking this question, if it was specifically for Charlie in general or for Andrew specifically about the Balfour project. Um, but I thought it was a good one to ask because I feel like it's a very important distinction that we like to make. So I thought it'd be a good platform to do it again. Um, do you make any allowance for or see a relevance of the difference between the Zionist ideology and that of regular Orthodox Jewish rabbis and, I guess, regular Jewish people? And Tess says it's a question to both of you. Andrew, do you want to go ahead first? Yeah, I, I think that distinction has to be made. Um, I mean, clearly, um, Orthodox Jews are a natural and normal part of many societies, and they, they should not be identified um, automatically with, with Zionists. There is no correlation between the two of them. In fact, there are some of the ultra-Orthodox Hasidic sects who are anti-Zionist, yes. uh, specifically an anti-Zionist. Yes. Um, they are seen as a bit of an oddity, but nevertheless, that is the case abroad. And I think we shouldn't forget or, or make these, uh, um, these correlations between the two. Mm. No, I, I would um, fully agree with that. And uh, I, although one you know recognizes the the you know the spectrum of um, belief and uh, it it happens in in all great faiths, um, and I do think we have to be very very careful. I mean, I think there are probably members of Breaking the Silence. Uh, you know, who would regard themselves, uh, you know, as orthodox um, and, and you know, having a faith, and yet they are very much against uh, what's going on here. So I think, I think we have to be very careful um, mm. in the language and the judgments that we use. Yeah. Um, so the next, um, actually, we've had a whole bunch of questions on these, on this issue of reparations. Mm. So um, basically, I'm lumping them all together. Uh, there was many questions about whether Israel will be obliged, you touched on it, to pay some kind of reparations. How would that process look like? 
and how likely is it to actually happen? Um, yeah, if you want, my, yeah, I was going to say if you want my guess, the answer is no. Um, I don't think there will be uh, reparations uh, because they have argued consistently this was in self-defense, and um, so I think you know they they would put forward. Uh, a huge number of uh, legal and other arguments uh, against the concept of, of reparations. I also think, actually, um, it would be an issue that would be very easy to get bogged down in. Um, I was at the, uh, uh, the embassy in Abu Dhabi when the daily income from Abu Dhabi's sovereign wealth fund exceeded their daily income from oil and gas exports. I mean, we're talking in the Gulf states uh, of countries that are, you know, rich beyond the dreams of um, anybody. Absolutely. Uh, do they have the resources? Yes. Would they notice? No. Um, the important thing is not the reparations the important thing is to get the help and get the construction of new um not just infrastructure but um, political social educational health um built uh, to deal with the traumatized people um you know palestinians in gaza um they are not interested in the philosophy of all this. Um, what they're going to be interested in is, please, somebody, make it stop, make it better. No, if precedent is a guide to the future, then you're absolutely right, Charlie, that Israel will say, we don't have to pay reparations for this. We're not responsible for it. Hamas attacked us in the first place. Yep. You're right. But... There are legal analyses um, which are in circulation at the moment, which I share, uh, which says that actually what all that Israel has been doing cannot be defined as self-defense. No. And besides, it was occupied territories. It yes. is the means by which it chose to retaliate and to attack the population as a whole cannot be ignored. Therefore, considering the tools that they used and the mass destruction that they inflicted, that therefore they must bear responsibility. That responsibility can be legal or it could be financial. So in principle, there is no reason to challenge this issue. And I'm going to give you a historical precedent, which perhaps you're familiar with also. And that is Saddam Hussein's invasion of, of yeah. Kuwait. Yes. When Hussein occupied Kuwait for four months, caused considerable destruction on the territory, killed many. It was a UN-led institution established after reparations from Iraq for the destruction that was caused there. So if it can apply there, why can't it apply in the case of Gaza? Uh, well, I would say there's a very simple answer to that, uh, in that, um, to a certain extent, um, Saddam was prepared to kind of go along with that um, as, as part of an effort to survive and and reintegrate himself back into the international community. Um, you have to ask the question, which is a kind of basic question, which is, you know, what's in it for me? From Israel's point of view, what's in it for me? Nothing. Um, if they say no, 
who's going to make them? Um, are the yep. Americans? No. Um, are the no. UN? Well, the UN, you know, has passed resolutions, um, resolution 242, for example. And what does Israel do? Well, it's inconvenient. We'll ignore it. Um, are the Americans going to put pressure on Israel to pay reparations? Nope. Um, no. Who is? So uh, I agree with the concept. I agree with the theory. But, you know, this is what I keep saying. You know, let's look beyond that and let's look at the reality and the practicalities and actually you know who's going to make money out of this it's going to be the lawyers who are going to be discussing it endlessly for the next 10 years rather than uh, palestinians in gaza you're absolutely right and the issue is one that almost everyone on this call is going to be very familiar with is israeli exceptionalism that israel is allowed to hold be held to different standards and to get away from uh, being dealt with as if it were any other state, which would be treated in a different way. But I can tell you for sure that the Arab states are saying, we're not going to pay the amounts that are going to be needed. Um, we're not a ATM in order to be able to, to, to do this, unless Israel agrees that there's going to be a Palestinian state. And as far yeah. as the Europeans are concerned, who are the other major donor, and traditionally the longstanding largest donor to the Palestinian Authority, they equally are going to tie the, their aid to, to this happening. Now, there is going to be a very significant arm wrestling going on over who ultimately pays the costs and, uh, and does it. It can't be Egypt because Egypt doesn't have the means to be able to do that. No. Egypt's cooperation well, logistically is critical. But at the end of the day, um, I can see European taxpayers being able to being forced to, to pay some of the bill. I know. I think I think that's absolutely right, um, and uh, when you say being forced to pay the bill, um, I think the you know public opinion is such that um, it won't be too grudging. I do think, though, that um, if conditions are right, and if the government in Israel changes, and 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 you know, I don't think that the first change of Israeli government is going to make much difference because the trauma is still too real. But you know, we have seen in other parts of the world where you have a you know a dictator or a, or a particularly you know um, difficult government that it takes two changes. Of, possibly three, uh, before things improve. And so, although, you know, I'm not going to be wildly optimistic in the, in, in the short term, in the medium to long term, I think things could change in Israel because, you know, people do get sick and tired of war. Um, yeah. And there's been a low level kind of war um, for some time. And if you look back at 67 and 73, uh, you know, that was, those were fairly clear cut where um, Israel um, against the odds um, survived and thrived. Um, whereas this, I think, is a very different case. I, I agree with you that it's going to take some time for the Israeli public to change its mind. But I'm, I have some hope that in the relatively near future, that Israelis will privately come to conclude that in the long run, 
their security depends on Palestinian security. It's yes. a very simple principle. But if they come to that conclusion, then they're going to have to change their attitudes towards what's required to, to allow Palestinians to have their freedom and their security. Can I tell a very quick story? When I was teaching in Jordan, and admittedly, this was quite a long time ago, um, there was uh, a Palestinian, one of my students, um, came to see me after the, the summer break, and I was talking to him about his holiday. And he told me that he and his family um, had lived in Jerusalem, at least his, his parents had, but, you know, in 67, uh, they went. And he said that every two or three years, he and his family went on holiday to Cyprus, where they met the Israeli family who were living in their house. And at a, a restaurant, uh, they would have a meal and on one side of the table sat the Israeli family and on the other side of the table sat the Palestinian family and in the middle of the table was the key to the house and the meal started off uh, by the um, father of the Israeli family putting the key on the table in the middle between them and saying we're looking after it until you can come back I'm glad there's a happy moral to that story. Dee, we're running out of time, but do we have time for one more round or not? Um, yes, I. Um, we're going to go a little bit over the quarter past mark, but um, hopefully everyone's okay with that because the conversation is so fascinating. Um, I will use this quick, make a little quick interlude to basically ask for money. Um, the webinar series is free because we want to reach as many people as possible. So please do share it with anyone that you think might be interested in this specific topic or our webinar series as a whole. Um, I've put links, um, but all of our past webinars are on our website. The recordings are video recordings and our audio recordings. So if you prefer to listen to them as a podcast um, format, then you can do that as well. Uh, but to help us to do that, we'd really very much appreciate if you would consider supporting our work. So I'm about to pop some links in the chat box or how to donate. Um, how to make an ad hoc or one-off donation, but also if you want to consider becoming a friend of the Balfour Project, um, we would really, really appreciate that. That means signing up for any amount, a regular donation of any amount, and I'll pop that link in the chat box as well. Um, in return, you get to come to quarterly meetings with key people from within the Balfour Project, as well as get discounted and free tickets for our paid events. So um, I'm going to pop those links in the chat box while you two are answering the next round of questions, which are all about what I guess the state would look like afterwards. So we've got a bunch of questions, including from Ian Neal and some others about how the surviving population would be able to, would be expected to live on such a tiny area of land that the Gaza Strip is, um, as well as it being separated from the West Bank. Um, as Paul Hughes Smith says, Without freedom of movement, won't Gaza remain a prison, which was the root cause of Hamas and the actions taken on the 7th of October? Um, so I'll hand over to you. Charlie. I think, you know, this is this is one of the conundrums, isn't it? Um, you know, my father was uh, there at the time of partition, 1946, 47. And here we are, have many years later, still talking about the same issues. Um, there's a, you know, the very practical problem of how do you unite the West Bank and Gaza? Um, when, how do you unite them politically, socially, 
economically um it's a it's a hugely difficult one and uh, if you're looking at overall peace settlement then can you see israel giving up uh, a strip of land that would join the two um i mean we can all think of ideal solutions but uh, I think it was King Hussein, you know, um, and others, you know, who talked about safe and secure and, um, you know, willing participants and all that. And you have to have everybody united in determination to, to make it work. In the short term, you, you know, developing new political structures is going to be a very, very difficult and dangerous game. Because if the Palestinians in Gaza feel that the PA is being foisted on them, um, then you know that will only provoke resentment because they voted them out in the first place. So there has to be a period of, I think, discussion and amongst those who are left in Palestine, in, in Gaza, uh, you know, what do they want? Um, but again, the lessons learned from, from Iraq is you have to be careful not to do that too soon because either they don't know or they're so fueled by trauma and resentment and anger that they're going to opt for the extremist position just as a means of... Um, of feeling that they're empowered to get back at the Israelis for what they've just done to them. So we have to be we have to be hugely careful and sensitive and and compassionate. And you know, compassion is not something that we talk about very often in politics. Um, but we do have to be compassionate for what they've been through and what they've suffered. Um, and also remember, you know, we have to remain compassionate to the Israelis as well, um, because we as the international community can't foist on them something that is going to cause them fear and alarm in Gaza. So this is baby footsteps, and we're gonna to have to be very careful um, you know, the PA may be clamoring to have a voice in Gaza, but, you know, we're going to have to um, be realistic and they're going to have to be realistic and we're going to have to exercise expectation management um, very, very carefully. What you were saying, Charlie, emphasizes and underlines the importance of sequencing of steps and getting yes. the steps right very carefully. Yes in response to things, but we both know, and it's been a running theme through this discussion, that wars don't end neatly, they end messily. And we can have advanced plans, but being able to put those into effect in a nice orderly way is unlikely, quite honestly. And we yes. have to be responsive to change circumstances. Yes. But there are certain realities we have to deal with. And the questions that are being asked here for a, of us by the audience are important ones. Prior to the, this war, long before that, um, Gaza was unlivable. And I was working there for the UN in Gaza when a report came out saying that based on all the estimates of their natural resources and the estimated population growth, 
that by 2020, Gaza would no longer be livable. Well, we're in 2024 now, and it's just gone through this major war. So people of any common sense can draw their own conclusions from that. Now, fortunately, there are some plans which have been developed in the past, and they depend on Israeli cooperation, but perhaps with some untwisting from uh, major Western countries, they could cooperate, which would allow for the development of a physical link between Gaza and the um, southern part of the West Bank in the Hebron area. With the plan developed by the Rand Corporation, a rather expensive credit, which allowed for both train and vehicle links to secure corridor through Israeli territory. And Israelis have done very successfully in the West Bank and rely on their own Jewish only, their only roads through the jet tunnels through the area, that can equally be done in reverse uh, uh, across yes. Israeli territory. Yeah. It, is, it is not unfeasible. You just need political will to be able to do it. Absolutely. Uh, but I think the key in all this is, you know, we, we've got to be prepared, even if it ends messily, um, and even if it ends inconclusively. Um, we have to be prepared we have to have the resources standing by. We have to have the people standing by, ready to go in, because we know this is going to happen. We know there is going to be an opportunity at some stage to get in um, aid, relief supplies, all these things, medicines. We know. Um, so if we know it now, and in a few months' time, we're not ready, then that is unforgivable. Okay, so the last word goes to preparedness. Uh, Dee, yeah. we've really overrun our time, and I, I think you should be wrapping up. Yep, I will um, wrap up by thanking everyone who attended. Um, like I said, I will be sharing the chat box with both speakers, so they'll be able to see. This has been the most um, engaged uh, chat box, most active chat box that we've had in a webinar for a long time. So I'll be sharing that with the speakers. So all of your comments will be going ahead to them. And um, so I want to thank everyone for taking part and for being so interactive and asking such amazing questions. And I want to thank you, Charlie and Andrew, for coming along and speaking to us all. And I hope you all have a lovely rest of the evening. And we will see you hopefully in February for our next webinar which will be like i said on um child detainees and um will it be included uh, we'll be including some speakers from save the children as well so uh keep an eye out for that thank you everyone and see you soon bye thank you bye bye